This week we're going to talk about a very important event in uh, the New Testament where uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And let me be honest with you, there's, we're going to spend as much time in this lesson today talking about the heresies that have come out of that declaration as we are going to be talking about the reality and the truth behind that declaration. So Richard, wherever you are, you may want to get a bucket of water over here. If I get too worked up, just douse me off. I, I <laughs> and my vo- yeah, thank you, brother. Or maybe a coffee cup. I won't get too worked up. My voice is a little weak. I do apologize. I'm trying to keep it lubricated. So we're going to start with a new memory verse. It's still one that should be familiar with all, to all of you. Let's try to say it together. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So last week we looked, it was a summary lesson, we looked at the second year of Jesus' ministry, focusing on his message and the training and development of his 12 select apostles. Over the next 10 lessons, we're going to be looking at the major events of the last year of his ministry, as he more completely reveals who he is and why he was on earth. Now, those of you who have a better knowledge of New Testament uh, chronology will recognize that in the lessons we've been covering, uh, we skipped a lot of events. We're, We're focusing on some of the core events. We're skipping a lot of the secondary ones. And in particular, there's a a lot of events we're skipping right here at the beginning of the third year. So I just wanted to go through them quickly, um, just so you have some flavor of the stuff we're not talking about. Um, One of the major events we talked about from last year in Mark 6, 30 through 56, described the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water near Bethsaida. And I don't have a laser pointer, so I'm just going to point. That's sad, isn't it? Uh, Bethsaida is up there on the Sea of Galilee, just on the northeast side. Then from there, uh, in Mark 7, 24 through 30, he traveled to Tyre and Sidon, that yellow region up to the north and west of Galilee. And there he healed the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. And then continuing in uh, 7, 31 through 37, he crossed the Sea of Galilee and healed a uh, a deaf man in Decapolis. And then he fed 4,000 men there in Decapolis. He travels back across the Sea of Galilee, back to Bethsaida, healing a blind man. And then he travels north, not northwest, but more due north, up to a city called Caesarea Philippi. Um, This is under the uh, authority of uh, Philip, the the Tetrarch. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was a city he named after himself. Clearly, he was a humble and reasonable man. Um, (laughs) The city of Philip. Now, as I was reading the materials, the third Passover happens during this period of time. Now, we don't have any evidence in the Bible that Jesus traveled to Jerusalem during the third Passover. Uh, And my lesson material uh, suggested he didn't go there because the Jews were out to get him. I have a hard time seeing Jesus fearing the Jews. There was no way they were going to do anything to him unless he willed it, unless it was within God's will. So I don't know. I don't know if Jesus went 
to uh, Jerusalem or didn't. The Bible is silent on it. Um, I have a little bit of a problem seeing Jesus not go during the Passover because it seems he wasn't always an observant Jew while he was living here. So I'm not sure. Um, certainly, uh, I, I do believe what, whatever he did was God's will. And uh, I really can't discuss it. It's not something we can debate too much. But again, there's no biblical evidence that he went to Jerusalem during that third Passover. And we're going to pick up our studies in an event that took place somewhere in the first half of the third year as Jesus and his disciples are up in Caesarea Philippi. Brother? When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Basically, they're up, at retreat, up in retreat. They're, they're out of Israel. He doesn't have to be doing a lot of preaching because, remember, his first message was primarily to Israel. So if he is in his disciples or 25 miles north of Galilee, I think basically they're taking a time out. Spend some time with his disciples, recover from the chaos, which is his ministry. Now, who did the people think Jesus was? Well, a lot of them thought he was John the Baptist. And as we read the Bible, we kind of go, wait, huh? John and Jesus had their ministries overlapping. How could they think he was John the Baptist? Well, remember, there was no mass media. So the people might not be aware that they had simultaneous ministries. And after all, John the Baptist's job was to introduce the Messiah. And he told the people that. But remember, the Messiah they're looking for is a liberator against Rome. And they haven't been liberated yet. So maybe John the Baptist's ministry is still ongoing. So this Jesus guy, he must be John the Baptist. Some thought he was Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. Um, per Malachi 4.5, which says, before Christ comes, Elijah must come. Well, a slight misunderstanding there because of this problem of this phrase, day of the Lord. Uh, many days of the Lord have there been. And many days of the Lord are still coming. Well, at least one. Um, and people tend to get confused which day of the Lord is the day of the Lord they're looking at. And Elijah will come before the next day of the Lord, uh, the triumphal return of Christ uh, at the end of the tribulation. 
some people thought he was that prophet, the prophet that Moses had prophesied would come, that they better listen to. And ironically, these people were right, half right, because Jesus was that prophet, but he was also so much more. And it's ironic that there were people who thought John the Baptist was the Messiah, but not a lot of people thought Jesus was the Messiah. They just, they couldn't get it right. But then the key question that Jesus asks his apostles, who do you say I am? And this is, this is the key question then and now. Because we all need to personally decide who Christ is to us. You can spend 50 years in the pews of a church, and what the church believes about Christ does you no good at all. It is what do you believe, who do you believe Christ is? Who is he to you that matters? Peter's statement is an answer to Jesus' question. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's also a statement of faith. Peter had faith in who Christ was. Saving faith. Declaring him to be the Christ includes not just his identity, but Peter's trust. And Christ for once, agrees. If you look at the, if you look at the New Testament, uh, Christ, Jesus will answer his, ask his disciples a question, and they get it wrong like almost all the time. <laughs> it's it's kind of depressing. But this time, Peter got it right, which must have been shocking to Peter. And Christ confirms what Jesus has said, and then he says, this was spiritually revealed to you, Peter, by the Father. This is knowledge that you don't get from your earthly origins. Christ says that he will build his church on this rock. We're going to talk about that. But let's just set that aside for the moment. Christ, oddly enough, told them not to spread this knowledge of his identity. Wasn't that Christ's very purpose on earth to establish his identity? And yet, when one of his apostles says, you're the Christ, Jesus says, you're absolutely right, now keep it quiet. That doesn't seem to logically follow. Remember, first of all, that the Jews misunderstood their own Messiah. And if word gets around that Jesus is the Messiah... They're going to grab him and stick him on a throne as best they can. Because they do not want a religious Messiah. They want a political and a military Messiah to save them from the horror which is Rome. Also consider, if this information that Peter got, that Christ was the Messiah, was delivered to him spiritually, you can't really spread that physically. You can preach the idea, but the... The, I lost a word, uh, the inspiration, the knowledge that who Christ is comes through us through the Spirit of God. <sighs> but let's talk about that rock. You'll notice I went with the bright red text on top. Don't let them confuse you. Because we have just entered heresy territory. Richard, get that bottle of water ready. Okay, 
I'm going to pick on a, I'm going to pick on a Christian uh, subsect. Uh, apologies in advance. The Roman Catholic Church uses this passage as their basis for the authority of their Pope. Peter, in English, or Petros, or Cephas, or Kepha, that's in order, uh, Greek, Greek translation of the Arabic and the direct Arabic. Okay, Kepha is the, is the excuse me, not Arabic, Aramaic. Kepha is the word that Jesus would have called Peter. It means a stone, a rock, in Aramaic. In our Bible, we'll see him called Cephas, which is Kepha transliterated into the Greek. You, you change around the letters to make it sound kind of the same. That makes sense? Kind of like John, if you put it into German, goes to Johann. How Jesus, if you put it into Spanish, goes to Jesus. You're just changing the pronunciation to fit the patterns of your language. But then Cephas, or Kepha, translated into Greek, Petrus. The Catholics have looked at this passage and said, we need a basis for the authority of our leader. And here it is, they believe. They believe this authority was passed down from Peter to the various leaders of the Roman Catholic Church through apostolic succession. And this is the foundational belief of their church hierarchy. It's also a beautiful example of eisegesis. Now, do you guys know the word, anybody, is anybody willing to admit they don't know the word eisegesis? Thank you. Eisegesis is the opposite of exegesis. How about exegesis? We all know exegesis? No? Okay, that's good. It's okay. I'm here to, I'm here to teach. Exegesis, which means taking out of, says you read the Bible, you figure out what it says, you draw that information out of the text, and hopefully you preach it, or you apply it in some way. It's what our preachers are trained to do. Eisegesis is putting in. That's when I walk into the Bible with my ideas and my interpretations and make them fit. So when you look at this passage, and we'll do that in a bit, and exegetically try to take the meaning out of it, there are arguably three possible meanings you can take out of it. We'll talk about that later. But what the Catholic Church has done is they said, we need a basis for our authority. This will work. And they put their own interpretation into the text, which is absolutely breaking the first rule of studying the Bible. I mean, the premier rule. Scripture is of no private interpretation, yes? Kind of important. Okay, so Peter was, in fact, a leader of the early church. No argument. By the end of the first century, the apostles had all died. Their disciples took over. Early in the second century, about 100 years later, one figure, Ignatius, argued that central authority was a good defense against heresy and disunity. And this was the beginning of the formation of the hierarchy. Gregory I, in 590 organized the idea of the pope, the, the papal system, although he himself refused the title of pope. But the idea of a papacy, 
of this supreme leader of the church who is God's representative on earth has been a gradually evolving idea. It didn't appear in the first century. It's been added to over time. As a matter of fact, the idea of ex cathedra, that the Pope speaking from his pulpit is infallible, didn't show up until 1870. 19 centuries later. Matter of fact, I was studying a little history uh, this morning, unrelated European history. Uh, those of you who are familiar with European history, I'm sorry for you, but those of you who are familiar with European history, uh, in the 15th century, the kings of France got mad at the Pope and kidnapped him and proceeded over 70 years to elect a Pope who was French, which really irritated the Italians. So at the end, the Italians put up a new Pope and the French put up their own pope, and there were two popes. Two men ordained by God to be man's, God's representative on earth and the head of the church. And the only way they resolved that was by saying the pope isn't the ultimate authority. The council of the church is the ultimate authority. And they deposed both of them and picked a new guy. I don't know where apostolic succession works in there. But we're going to sweep that one under the rug if we're Catholics and pretend nobody notices the bump. This is their idea, apostolic succession. The Bible, however, is clear that Jesus is the leader and foundation of the church and head of the body. Ephesians 2.20, and they are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You guys know what a cornerstone is? It's just a stone that sits in the corner of the building. Doesn't much matter, right? Well, it is the keystone. You set the cornerstone first, and then you take all the measurements from that standard. The entire foundation is built from that stone, piece by piece by piece. And if you don't have that cornerstone, you can't build the foundation. So you could argue that Peter was foundational in the church, but he's not the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. You see the Pope in there anywhere? I don't. Peter understood Jesus to be the cornerstone of the church, not him. Peter, speaking in the book of Acts, chapter 4, 11 and 12, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, speaking to the Jews, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Peter did not consider authority and hierarchy to be the bulwark against heresy, unlike Ignatius, but the knowledge of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. He says the bulwark against heresy is a better knowledge of Christ, not central authority. Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for elevating him, Apollos, and Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, to the level of Christ in 1 Corinthians. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He very clearly shows that human beings, no matter who they are, no matter what their prominence in the church, are not the head of anything. So analysis of the text, we're talking about exegesis now, reveals three possible interpretations for this rock. Jesus himself, the man, the identity of Christ who was here on earth, could be this rock. It could be his identity, the truth of who he was, Christ the Son of God. Or it could be his apostles, collectively or individually in Peter, who made the declaration. Well, we can knock out the first. Because that man died and provided no leadership for the church. That incarnation of Christ is not the rock. It doesn't make logical sense. And while the apostles were foundational and leaders of the early church, they were laid on Christ's foundation. In Ephesians chapter 2, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That verse blows up the idea that it was the apostles that were the foundation. They were foundational, but they weren't what the foundation was laid on, Christ. Or again in 1 Corinthians, According to grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, says Paul, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon, for other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Those two passages says it wasn't the apostles. So what are we left with? That middle possibility that it was the identity of Christ as the Son of God, which was this rock. Do you guys follow that? Or do I need to go back? Okay? One other dagger in the idea that it's the apostles. When the disciples strove to be the greatest, who was the greatest among us? Jesus pointed them to humility and servanthood. How many uh, humble popes do you guys know of? Is that the true marking of the head of the Catholic Church? Matthew 18. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. And said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If there was an anti-hierarchical statement in the Bible, there it is. Our pastors are the servants of the people. The, the authority in this church is... Uh, the deacons, the congregation as a whole, guided by the pastor, with the head being, thank you, brother. Now, the bottom line is Jesus was using a play on words when he said this in Aramaic. Peter, who Christ had previously named Cephas, or Kepha, 
Remember, he did that when first he met Simon Barjona. He said, you shall be named Cephas. Rocky, if you prefer, if we were to use an English uh, equivalent. <laughs> or basically, uh, possibly given Peter's history, the little stone you get in your shoe. <laughs> and he made a play on words as he said this. He says, you, Rocky, were the one who made this declaration. And upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's doing a little play on words, a little humor. What an unfortunate turn of phrase that God put into the Bible. Do you think he made a mistake? God makes no mistakes. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We do not have to understand why God chose to document that conversation that way in his Bible, potentially opening up the possibility of heresy. God could have printed the Bible like a video uh, player instruction manual detailing every last little bit of doctrine. He chose not to do that. It is not our job to figure out why. Okay? God did not make a mistake when he put that in the Bible. It was not a mistranslation. It was not a goof on the part of the uh, writers of the Bible. It was what God wanted to have in there. Not our job to figure out why. Now we can bemoan the human sin that has resulted in that heresy. But we shouldn't be questioning why God put it in there. So, having dealt now with the big misconception of this passage, we still get into the question of who Christ is. Now, Peter had a declaration of who he believed Christ is. Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And remember, this question came out about because what other people believed about Jesus. And it's no different today. There are people today who have one understanding of Christ, which will get them into heaven. And there are a lot of people today which have a different understanding of Christ. And we're going to spend a few minutes talking about that. These are misprofessions about Christ. There are those who say, well, Christ existed as a real person in history. Congratulations, you're one up from those who deny that Christ existed in history. But believing in his simple existence is not sufficient. The Jews believed he was a person. Did it do them any good? The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. You might remember that from two weeks ago. And they said, is, this not, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I come down from heaven? Rejecting Christ's divinity is not going to help. Just acknowledging that he was a person gets you nowhere. Well, okay, Jesus was a moral person and a good example. Have we heard this one? This does not require perfection or a divine mission to save humanity. But Jesus claimed to be God. If he were only a moral person, he was lying. So he's not a moral person and a good example. 
John 14, 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, some people say Jesus was good or even a great teacher. Once again, he could not have been a good teacher if what he taught was false because he taught that he was the Son of God. And if he wasn't, if he was just a teacher, well, then he was a lying teacher, and that's not a very good teacher. The Jews wanted to see him. Many people today want to see him as a rabbi, a teacher of the Jews, but not as Messiah. There's an entire religion, Islam, that accepts Jesus as a teacher, but not as Messiah. Luke 18, 19, And Jesus said unto them, Why callest me good? None is good, save one, that is God. There's some who say Jesus was a prophet. Well, even if he was only a prophet, then he was false a prophet because he claimed to be divine. And no other prophet in the history of the Bible ever did that because they knew better. Jesus was that prophet, as we said, of Deuteronomy 18, but he was also so much more. He was the prophet and the message of the prophet. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Then there are those who say, well, Jesus was the Son of God. But he wasn't God. Or he was just a God, little g. One of multiple gods or created by God, not just a begotten son. A member of the Godhood is who he is. The son of God, who is God, is who he is. The Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, their views are insufficient. Yes, Jesus is the son of God. And then they don't say anything more. <laughs> and you can be too. Yeah, they, They're missing it. It's not enough. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's not skip that last little phrase. It's kind of important. <sighs> okay. I'm going to calm down now. Next passage, please, brother. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem, and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
So from that day in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus advances his message to the next notch, if you will. Remember, the first year, Jesus' message was, I have come from God and I have a message for you. You're doing it wrong. The, the religion of the Pharisees is not going to get you to heaven. He moves on in the second year. He gets a little harder about that part of the message. And he talks about God's standards, that you're misinterpreting the law. That it's not just what you do, it's what you think. The bar is so much higher than you think it, it is. And you need another way. It's a progression, a gradual revelation of the message as Jesus tries to move the Israelites from their self-satisfied thinking that we are good enough to the reality that they're not even close to good enough and they need to rely upon God. So year two, his message is somewhere in the middle. What you're doing is not good enough. You need a new way. God will provide that way. Year three, hey, guess what? I'm the way. And allusions to his sacrifice and death, which had been cloaked in allegory in year two, he starts stating plainly. But when he states... That about his coming mistreatment and death at the hands of the Jews, Peter kind of pulls him off to the side and says, no, 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 no. You don't understand, Jesus. Let me correct your misunderstandings. This won't happen to you. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Maybe you misspoke. You know, maybe you need to tone down that part of the message. It's going to disturb people. Peter's trying to be helpful. Um, Peter does not have the full picture yet. Regardless of what he said in Caesarea Philippi, regardless of of his understanding that this is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, He doesn't understand what Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is here to do. And so he's going to correct Jesus' misconceptions. You have to admire the audacity of the dude. Um, Jesus responds to this rebuke from Peter with a pretty sharp rebuke of his own. You know, I don't think Peter minded being called a rock or a stone. But I can't think of anybody who'd particularly care to be called Satan. Get thee behind me. He tells him his thinking is worldly. And it's a simple truth. Jesus had error. Peter had an idea in his head of how Jesus was going to save the world, or maybe some kind of an idea. We don't know what it was, but it did not mesh up with God's plan because he'd come up with this idea himself. This is his earthly, worldly thinking. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You know, you did so good back up in Caesarea Philippi when you were listening to God and you heard his revelations. Try listening a little more and shut your mouth for a while. Jesus tells his disciples that they must be ready to sacrifice their lives 
in his service in the same way he's going to. That could have been a bit of a shock. And, you know, the, the reality is Jesus often taught contradictory things because he would contrast the heavenly with the earthly. And here he says, you save your life by losing it. You lose your life by trying to save it. And if you examine that on a purely worldly mind frame, that is babble. It is dribble. It is illogical. It makes no sense. Which gets us back to why you need to be able to read the Bible from a spiritual sense with the guidance of God. Because humanity is never going to resolve you save your life by losing it, you lose your life by saving it. But on a spiritual basis, you save your life by willing to, being willing to lose it in the service of God. So, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that second aspect. Just the reality that as much as the apostles understood going into that third year, there was still an awful lot they did not understand. And Jesus, Jesus was a great teacher. In that, when his students had it wrong, he didn't hesitate to straighten them out. And his students had it wrong rather a lot. Uh, which makes them great foils for us because we get it wrong rather a lot. So, how do you ensure that your view of Christ is accurate and sufficient? Because remember, there's a lot of views of Christ that are insufficient. He's the Son of God, but He's not God. Well, you've got a problem. Anyone want to? Other than Greg, who's pantomiming to me. Thank you, brother. Anyone want to touch that one? 